From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Oborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to your Global News Hour. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be with you today. On today's show, India's Supreme Court revokes Kashmir's special status. Poland gets a new prime minister. The Obamas become successful film producers with an end of the world movie as the globalists continue to cry foul over losing control of the entire world's media. And the Netherlands have spent more than 400 billion euro on migrants in the past quarter century. But first today, the 500 year long dominance of the West is coming to an end, being replaced by a new polycentric world. Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said on Sunday in a video address to the Doha Forum, this hegemony of the US and its allies has been based on a diverse history including ruthless exploitation of peoples and territories of other countries, he said. According to the minister, the West suggested that it could use the model of globalisation, which it had been building for centuries, to maintain its dominance. However, other countries using exactly the principles and instruments of the Western globalisation managed to beat the West on its own turf, building the economies on the basis of national sovereignty, on the basis of balance of interests with other countries. New centres of economic growth and political influence have been emerging, changing the balance of power in the world and not to the West's liking, he said. In order to suppress this kind of development, the US and its allies have in recent years sacrificed globalisation in favour of the so-called rules-based world order. Lavrov continued, the rules were never published was never even announced by anyone to anyone, and they are being applied depending on what exactly the West needs at a particular moment of modern history. He added, the foreign minister said that such an approach is most seen in various conflicts which the West ignites all over the world, including the one in Ukraine. Everyone goes to keep hegemony. Intervention in domestic affairs, sanctions against all the principles of competition, regime change, and of course, direct military interventions like we've seen in Yugoslavia, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and elsewhere. Is there a single place where the US intervened with military force where life has become better? I think you know the answer, Lavrov told the forum participants. According to the diplomat, new formats like BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, ASEAN, African Union, and others will become the BRICS of the new polycentric world. It should be recognized, including by those in the West, that the objective course of history is the evolution of a multipolar world, Lavrov insisted. And the Iranian human rights campaigner, Nargis Mohammadi, has been honored her absence at a ceremony in Norway after winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Mohammadi is in prison in Tehran and has not seen her exiled family in nearly a decade. Nobel Committee has called her the symbol of what it means to be a freedom fighter in Iran. Her children accepted her award, her award in her absence. Al Jazeera's Paul Rees reports from Oslo in Norway. The children of Nargis Mohammadi entered Oslo City Hall to collect the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of their mother. An Iranian human rights campaigner accused of spreading propaganda against the state Mohammadi is serving a 12-year sentence in Evin prison in Tehran. Her acceptance letter was read out by her daughter, Kiana. I am an Iranian woman, proud and honored to be contributing to a civilization which is today victim of an oppression from a religious, despotic and misogynistic government. The 17-year-old twins have spent most of their childhood without one or other of their parents. 
Their father, Tagi, was also imprisoned in Iran before fleeing with them to France in 2011. This prize is not only awarded to my mother, but to all the Iranian activists, political prisoners, to all those exiles who fought for Iran. Our mother is in our heart. We agree with her struggle. I accepted this when the Revolutionary Guard came to our house when we were four years old and took my father by force to prison. While missing their mother, Ali and Kiana believe they are privileged to be able to speak for her without the fear of imprisonment. The last time I saw my mother, I was nine years old, and I already accepted the possibility of never seeing her again. Now that she won the Nobel Peace Prize, I think the Iranian government will cut off her contact with the outside world, because if she even breaks free, now that the spotlight is on her, she will have more impact. Mohammadi's campaigning is focused on women's rights, Iran's death penalty and the treatment of political prisoners. She's described the separation from her twins as incurable. The Burkina Faso government adopted on Wednesday a bill revising the constitution and henceforth enshrining national languages as official language in place of French which is relegated to the rank of working language. The report of the Council of Ministers specifies that this bill is part of the realisation of one of the main missions, the transition, which consists of initiating political, administrative and institutional reforms to strengthen the culture democratically and consolidate the rule of law. Among the major innovations of this new text is the establishment of national languages as official languages in place of French. Earlier this year, Mali governed like Burkina by the military and which also maintains terrible relations with France, had modified its constitution by referendum and reserved the same fate for the French. This bill, which must still be voted on by the Transitional Legislative Assembly, also provides for the establishment of traditional and alternative dispute resolution mechanisms. The Constitutional Council sees its missions expanded while institutions are abolished, such as the High Court of Justice, which judges senior political figures or the mediator of FASO. Finally, the powerful National Intelligence Agency sees its status reinforced by now being protected in the Constitution. With more, we join this report from African News. Burkina Faso's government on Wednesday adopted a bill revising its constitution to enshrine the country's indigenous languages as official ones in place of French. French, which has been the official language for over a century, has now been relegated to the rank of working language. The bill must still be voted on by the Transitional Legislative Assembly before being signed into law. The country's ruling junta came to power in a coup in September 2022 and earlier this year promised a partial modification of the constitution. It comes following months of worsening relations between France and Sahelian countries. Earlier this year, Mali also established national languages as official ones in the country's updated constitution, similarly removing French. Burkina Faso has steadily severed ties with France, while deepening ties with Moscow. The country has also moved closer to neighbouring Mali and Niger, with the three countries recently proposing an alliance of Sahel states. The powerful people who control the purse strings of Australia's biggest companies are worried about what lies ahead next year, coinciding with a warning the economy has hit a wall. 
Consulting firm Deloitte released its biannual CFO sentiment report today, which takes the pulse of big business by surveying 84 chief financial officers. It shows confidence has plunged on virtually every measure, with 43% of CFOs pessimistic about the outlook for the national economy and 20% concerned about their own business's short-term financial prospects. A tiny 14% of CFOs think now is a good time to take on fiscal risk, the lowest level in more than a decade and a sign of how serious unfavourable conditions are viewed in the business world. CFOs are having a bruising time of it, the grim Deloitte report reads. Six months ago, we saw CFO optimism in their own business prospects fall sharply as the weakening economic climate began to bleed through to business activity. But there was hope the economic cycle may turn for the better. Fast forward today and the economic headwinds remain strong. CFOs are hunkering down and facing difficult trade-offs as they navigate a path through the economic storm. Among those painful decisions being mulled by many is job cuts. 40% of respondents expect a reduction in headcount over the coming year. That's up sharply from 26% just six months ago. The major drivers of low confidence are higher interest rates and still hot inflation, with CFOs expecting both will stay elevated for longer. Sentiment in the outlook for the broader economy is extremely weak. Weak, the Deloitte report reads. Just 38% of CFOs expect rates to be lower this time next year, with many resigned to the view that rates are going to stay higher for longer. Meanwhile, Sky News business editor Ross Greenwood says the federal government finished its parliamentary year this week in the poorest shape since it was elected. Let's start with the federal government, which finished its parliamentary year this week in the poorest shape it's been since it was elected. The economy is slowing rapidly. Interest rates and inflation are testing families and business alike. The voice was comprehensively misjudged and the High Court decision to release 148 people from detention, including some who committed serious criminal offences, was mishandled and has had to be swiftly amended. Well, under the surface, something else going on that is equally dangerous for the Albanese government. It is increasingly seen as being anti-business, and that's something that no government can survive for long. Because unlike previous generations, large Australian companies today have choice as to where and how they invest their capital. If Australia is unwelcome or if it's just too hard to make a profit here, they can and will go elsewhere, to Canada, to Mexico, to America, to Asia. And that's in no one's interest, especially a government striving to keep as many people in a job as they possibly can. Now, for one example, where a company has made such a decision, look no further than our biggest company, BHP. Its chief executive, Mike Henry, told me he would not invest in Queensland while the government there raised royalties and its then-treasurer, Cameron Dick, current treasurer, threatened to strip the company of unused assets. Quite incredible, isn't it, that uh, one again we're seeing in Australia yet another chance for a one-term prime ministership in the form of Anthony Albanese. Already we've seen seven prime ministers in Australia in 16 years, this coming after John Howard served for 11 years, Paul Keating for nearly six, and Bob Hawke eight or more before that, Malcolm Fraser another nine, eight or nine before that as well. So we've seen a complete change in the Australian government here where the turnover is absolutely immense. But it seems that things are avoidable and yet they still have to play the traditional way of doing things because government is just so slow to react to what seems anything. The CFO report, very, very telling there. And in the wake of the testimony given before US Congress concerning the use of anti-Semitic references in three Ivy League universities, 
There are growing calls for the remaining two university presidents to be removed, like University of Pennsylvania's Liz McGill. McGill resigned after mounting pressure, a softening of her language used in Congress in a later statement, and the withdrawal of a $100 million grant from a benefactor. Here we are going to go to Fox and Friends earlier, where this report with Congressman Jim Banks grilling UPenn's Liz McGill. Why did Penn let Professor Ahmad Amala off the hook, who led hundreds of students in chanting, there's only one solution, Intifada revolution? Why does that professor still have a job at your university? Representative, our approach to uh, speech is as I identified, it follows and is guided by the United States Constitution, uh, which allows for robust perspectives. Well, hopefully that comes soon. I mean, remember, McGill didn't just resigned. She's just going to the law school to teach. And the reason that she left is because she lost a $100 million donation to the university. So hopefully MIT and Harvard hear from their donors as well. I mean, this is all about money for them. And that's why the House Education Committee last week under Dr. Fox, our chair's leadership, launched a further investigation into these schools. We're going to subpoena their records, their emails, any documents, anything that proves that these universities aren't creating a safe environment for their Jewish students. And if they aren't, then we're gonna pull their federal funding. That's the bottom line. If it's about the money to get these universities to do the right thing, then they could not just lose major donations, but lose the federal funding that makes these universities work. That's the, that's the next big step. It's a big step and a big threat, and they are trading blows. That is Donald Trump and Joe Biden as the stage is set for a tumultuous 2024 election campaign. Can you believe it? This is their new line, you know, Trump said on Saturday at an event hosted by the New York Young Republican Club. Here we go again. Russia, 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 Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. One hoax after another, Trump added. But no, I'm not a threat. I will save democracy. The threat is crooked Joe Biden. The former president has claimed the myriad legal cases he faces are politically motivated and has vowed to prosecute Biden if he returns to office. The former president's latest comments came soon after he was criticised by his Democratic rivals for saying that he intended to briefly be a dictator if he is re-elected to install more border fortifications and introduce domestic oil production policies. I said, I want to be a dictator for one day, Trump added on Saturday in New York in reference to his comments the days before. And you know why I want to be a dictator? Because I want a wall and I want to drill, drill, drill. Meanwhile, Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor and candidate for the Republican nomination for president next year, said during the party's fourth primary debate last week that Trump's comments revealed him to be an angry, bitter man who now wants to be back as president because he wants to exact retribution on anyone who has disagreed with him. Meanwhile, Biden recently cast dire warning about the potential outcome of a second Trump presidency. At a fundraising event in Los Angeles on Saturday, Biden said the greatest threat Trump poses is to the democracy. The president also said at an earlier campaign event last month in San Francisco that some of Trump's rhetoric has its roots in authoritarianism, especially his promise to be his supporters' retribution, describing political opponents as vermin. And after the break, India's Supreme Court revokes Kashmir's special status. You are watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. 
TNT Radio's James Freeman. We have new revised figures from the Office for National Statistics showing that legal, that's not illegal, that's legal, net migration to the UK has witnessed one of the largest increases on record. Three quarters of a million additional people are now living in the UK in the space of just one year. A huge number that comes just three years after we left the European Union. Now, I didn't vote for Brexit because of immigration. I voted because of democracy, but millions did vote because they think too many people are coming into the country, which makes what the government has allowed to happen an absolute two fingers up to the people and democracy. Another example, if we needed another, of how the government does the exact opposite to what the people want and vote for. The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform, that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans. That's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. From world news to global policies and beyond, beyond. this is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back. India's Supreme Court on Monday upheld a decision made by the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi in 2019 to repeal Article 370 of the Constitution, which provided a special status to Jammu and Kashmir, the Muslim-majority region sandwiched between India, Pakistan and China. The special status that the Indian-administered Kashmir had enjoyed since 1947, when British rule over the subcontinent ended and India and Pakistan were born as two independent nations, provided it a certain level of autonomy. The Supreme Court also urged the federal government to recognise Jammu and Kashmir as a state again, directing the relevant authorities to hold assembly elections by September 30th, 2024. The region had its last assembly election in 2014, and its local legislature was dissolved in November of 2018 through an order by the governor. Articles 370's key feature was that laws passed by the Indian parliament did not automatically apply to Jammu and Kashmir, and it was the right of the local legislature to approve them by passing a parallel act. The larger Kashmir region has been the focus of a major border dispute primarily between India and Pakistan since 1947. The opposition, including Kashmir's largest local parties, has vehemently opposed revocation of the region's special status. Prime Minister Modi described the Supreme Court's judgment as a resounding declaration of hope, progress and unity. He wrote on X, the verdict today is not just a legal judgment, it is a beacon of hope, a promise of a brighter future, and a testament to our collective resolve to build a stronger, more united India. With more, we join this report from RT's Ranjun Sharma. Article 370. What this provision did was it gave the state of Kashmir powers to make their own constitution. And for example, it also exempted the state from the constitution of India. So for example, if, uh, if the central government in India had to uh, put any law in place, they had to take permissions from Kashmir, the state, the state permission. And uh, but of course, except for uh, some areas such as defense or finance or uh, foreign ministry, for example, they they continued to take those decisions. But for other decisions, it was the state 
that had to give permissions to the central government that was stripped away so that special status of kashmir uh, that had been there for the last 70 odd years now the supreme court of india upholds the abrogation of article 370 of the constitution very clearly saying that the article 370 was a temporary provision also the supreme court of india said that uh, bifurcation or abrogation of article 370 is valid what that means is that uh, the there were a couple of petitions that were filed in the supreme court challenging the validity of article 370 the abrogation of it which was done by the modi government back in 2019 august of 2019 so these bunch of petitions questioned the validity or the move by the government of india now the supreme court of india has stamped that the decision which was taken by the government of india back in august of 2019 four years ago is the right decision and uh, uh, that they were within uh, the the powers to have taken that decision also the supreme court of india has gone one step ahead and they've gone on to say that uh, they've directed rather the election commission of india that there should be elections conducted in the state of jammu and kashmir by 30th september 2024 so by next year to restore the statehood of uh, jammu and kashmir as soon as possible also the supreme court of india has gone on to say that jammu and kashmir uh, does not have any internal sovereignty so that decision which the supreme court has taken that verdict also carries a lot of historic burden the dutch government's spending on migrants exceeds the average outlay on education social security and benefits according to a new study The net cost of immigration has reportedly amounted to more than 400 billion euro, 430 million US dollars at the current rate of a nearly 25-year time frame. The study titled Borderless Welfare State: The Consequences of Immigration on Public Finances found that costs incurred by immigration policies in the Netherlands have totaled 17 billion euro a year on average with a peak of 32 billion in 2016 due to the 2015 refugee crisis. The authors of the study emphasise that the vast costs are mainly a result of financial redistribution via the welfare state, and concluded that either immigration will have to be curtailed, or the Dutch welfare system will have to undergo dramatic cuts. Continuing immigration at its current pace and cost structure will put increasing pressure on public finances. The study cited, making the curtailment of the welfare state or immigration inevitable. In 2016 alone, the Dutch government reportedly spent some 30 billion dollars on education, which is 2 billion euro less than it spent on migrants in the same year. The study also highlights that immigrants commonly pay lower taxes and make fewer social security contributions than non-migrants. This has been confirmed by a separate report made by the Dutch Finance Ministry, which admits that the net fiscal contribution of migrants is significantly lower than the rest of the population. According to the study, there is a particularly high negative contribution rate from migrants coming from nations including Turkey and Morocco. Over the course of the average Moroccan immigrant's lifetime, they were estimated to cost the Dutch people 260,000 euro. 
per person. According to the study, migrants from the Middle East and North Africa on average fail to make a positive contribution relative to what the state spends on them. Other non-Western immigrants, notably Asians, make a slight net contribution, the research found. However, immigrants from Western countries lag behind native Dutch nationals in their economic contributions. And Donald Tusk is seen, well, uh, start again, veteran pro-EU politician Donald Tusk on Monday became Poland's new Prime Minister after the country's parliament ousted now former PM Matthias Morawiecki in a decisive no-confidence vote. Tusk secured a com comfortable victory with 248 MPs voting for him and 201 against. The politician needed to secure at least 225 votes to become the new Prime Minister. The election of a Premier came shortly after the Polish Parliament ousted Morawiecki from his post. The House overwhelmingly backed the no-confidence motion against the now former PM, with some 266 MPs voting in favour of it. The downfall of Morawiecki comes after his right-wing Law and Justice Party suffered losses in Poland's general election in mid-October. It was won by Tusk's broad coalition of pro-EU parties, which now holds a majority in the parliament. The PIS party has now conceded defeat, with party president Jarosław Kaczynski hailing the country's democracy, although he blamed the downfall of the government on a broader smear campaign against the party. After Tusk got elected, however, Kaczynski himself became unruly and stormed the parliament's podium in the process accusing the new PM of becoming a German agent. Tusk served as Poland's Prime Minister between 2007 and 2014. Shortly after ending his tenure, he became the President of the European Council, leading the bloc's executive body until late 2019. And after the news headlines, all the world's a stage as the Obamas produce a hit end-of-the-world movie. You are watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. TNT Radio News. I have some exciting news. Matt Boyland here with a quick look at your TNT headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is back in Washington demanding more money and weapons from Congress. Ukraine is now threatening to boycott next year's Olympics in Paris after Games bosses gave Russian athletes the green light to compete under a neutral flag. And Israel has been accused of using white phosphorus bombs supplied by Washington to attack a small village in southern Lebanon. The common housefly, caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Whoa. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNT Radio. Dot live. And so is all the world a stage. After Anthony Fauci warned then President Donald Trump of a certain surprise outbreak during his term in office, which was followed by a dress rehearsal known as Event 201 that miraculously predicted the emergence of a coronavirus, vaccine hesitancy and lockdowns, many people who were paying attention called this planned and predicted. And given that the same people who predicted and planned that event have obviously no interest in determining the origins of COVID, it leaves a glaring hole in the narrative. Was COVID man-made and let out deliberately? Now, former President Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama have their first film hit with a film titled Leave the World Behind, an apocalyptic thriller released on Netflix on December the 8th. Co-produced by the Obama's Higher Ground Productions, 
Picture stars Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke, along with Kevin Bacon. It was directed and co-produced by Sam Esmail, known for the TV series Mr. Robot. The Obamas founded Higher Ground in 2018 to tell powerful stories that entertain, inform and inspire while elevating new and diverse voices in the entertainment industry, according to the company's website. The two-hour-plus film about what happens when the electricity mysteriously goes out in the US is Netflix's number one picture globally and in top position in 85 countries, according to Flix Patrol, which tracks viewing on streaming services. The film, Leave the World Behind, as I said, starring those actors, uh, warns that white people should not be trusted if the world faces an apocalyptic disaster. The movie's plot follows a white family vacationing in a rented house on Long Island. At the beginning of the movie, the vacation's homeowner, G.H. Scott, and his daughter Ruth arrive at their home after a major cyber attack occurs across the United States. During one scene, G.H. and his daughter Ruth are seen together about to sleep, and his daughter states, the world falls apart. Trust not to be doled out easily to anyone, especially white people. Let's play that for you now in this movie trailer. I'm asking for you to remember that if the world falls apart, trust should not be dulled out easily to anyone, especially white people. I'm so sorry to bother you. You must be Amanda. Why did you come here? In my line of work, you have to understand the patterns that govern the world. They can help you see the future. And I knew something was coming. I don't understand. What do you mean? We are seeing ongoing cyber attacks across the country. The truth is much scarier. What is the truth? We're going to be okay, right? Aren't you the one who always said, if you're not paranoid by now, it's too late? Haven't you been picking up on what's going on out there? We've all been deserted. There is no going back to normal. So does this plot look familiar to you? With warnings of a global cyber attack, with art imitating life, fear used as entertainment, with those who predict it being considered protected oracles rather than conspirators. If the media does not call it out and the political opponents do not call it out, then who will believe that it was just not just chance? After all, with the absence of will and enough overwhelming evidence, claims can be made as the rantings of the angry and powerless, people who do not need to be listened to. After all, the powerful are there for a reason, because they are better than the rest of us, seemingly for one reason or another. But what happens when the globalists have already pre-warned us? What happens when this cyber attack warning heats up in real life? Should we take notice or ignore the warnings and just continue to go along with the official narrative? After all, vaccines are safe and effective, right? And can be now created in less than a year and be made compulsory for your benefit. Silly. Here is a clip from the World Economic Forum warning of a cyber attack that, of course, will be more damaging than COVID. COVID-19 pandemic has shaken our economies and societies to the core and shown us how vulnerable we are to biological threats. 
In the digital world, similar risks are being overlooked right now. A cyber attack with COVID-like characteristics would spread faster and further than any biological virus. Its reproductive rate would be around 10 times greater than what we've experienced with the coronavirus. To give you an idea, one of the fastest worms in history, the 2003 slammer sapphire worm, doubled in size approximately every 8.5 seconds, infecting over 75,000 devices in 10 minutes and almost 11 million devices in 24 hours. Fortunately, at least until now, cyber attacks have not impacted our health the way pandemics have, but the economic damages, and therefore the impact they have had on our daily lives, have been equal and sometimes even greater. You see, the only way to stop the exponential propagation of a COVID-like cyber threat is to fully disconnect the millions of vulnerable devices from one another and from the internet. All of this in a matter of days. A single day without the internet would cost our economies more than 50 billion US dollars, and that's before considering the economic and societal damages should these devices be linked to essential services, such as transport or healthcare. As the digital realm increasingly merges with our physical world, the ripple effects of cyber attacks on our safety just keep on expanding at a faster pace than what we're preparing for. COVID-19 was known as an anticipated risk. So is the digital equivalent. Let's be better prepared for that one. The time is now. And so, if the world is controlled by the World Economic Forum because politicians fall over themselves to get to Davos and be the next in line to enjoy the panels, and if the World Economic Forum produces people like Barack Obama and they get to be funded by Netflix to be producers of such movies, then why the push for digital ID and central bank digital currencies at a rate of knots that you can't even object to it when we have the threat of a cyber attack? It's almost like they want it to happen and are forcing it to happen. And the people, when did we just become the possessions of people like Klaus Schwab. Meanwhile, back to Australia and Deputy Premier Stephen Miles is set to become Queensland's next Premier after shoring up support from union heavyweights for the big gig. The Courier Mail reported that Miles secured enough support from union members during a late night deal on Monday, and that's paved the way for Anastasia Palaszczuk's lieutenant to take up the state's top job, beating Treasurer Cameron Dick and Health Minister Shannon Fentiman, who had both indicated interest in the leadership. Miss Fentiman was forced to concede defeat less than 12 hours after announcing she would contest the top job following Palaszczuk's resignation on Sunday. Issuing a statement just before 8am on Tuesday, Fentiman said she would support her long-standing friend in the leadership position after it became clear the majority of MPs would vote for Miles. As a result, I will not be standing as a candidate for the Labor leadership when caucus meets Friday, she said. I want to congratulate Stephen and offer my support in the work ahead. Stephen is a long-standing friend and he will have my full support as Premier of Queensland. Now is the time for unity and Labor's focus must turn to delivering for Queenslanders and retaining government at next year's election. A ballot for the leadership will take place on Friday when Anastasia Palaszczuk will formally resign. And coming up after the break, a look into the globalists' complaints about social media distracting from their climate emergency. You're watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. Here's a bushfire fact. Bushfires can occur without warning. So if you're traveling during bushfire season, here are three simple steps to remember. One, check the fire danger rating before you go. The higher the fire danger rating, the more dangerous the conditions. It may be safer to replan your trip. 
Two, think about the area you're going to and what you would do if a fire started. How would you escape the area if you needed to? And where would you go? Check if there's a neighbourhood safer place. Three, it's dangerous to drive through smoke or fire. If you can't find a way to avoid the fire, park in a cleared area, face the car towards the fire and turn the engine off. Then lie on the floor and cover yourself to protect yourself from radiant heat. Live bushfire ready. For more helpful tips, visit myfireplan.com.au today. Anticipate potential delays for the morning commute. In other news, a recent government report on prescription drug pricing points to corporate mouth. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. What are you talking about, man? Look at his stats. It's about your right to be informed. Your right to access all types of information keeps us free as a nation. No, 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 no. Today, there are real threats to press freedom. residential areas by... And your right to know about the world around us. Look. Some threats are obvious, some are easy to miss, but they all put our way of life at risk. We must defend against all of these threats, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Justified putting American troops in harm's way. That's a great question. We must protect our right to know before it's too late. Understand the threats. Protectpressfreedom.org. You're with Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Well, we're going to see the globalists sweat now, so buckle up. A new theme is emerging amongst the globalists that is now about complaining that the media landscape is not helping their plans. Can you believe that? No, seriously. Yesterday, I played a clip from former New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern speaking before the United Nations and bemoaning the lack of collective will in getting the public behind their latest catastrophe, this one being climate change. Now, Al Gore, the former vice president and Oscar winner for the flawed whiteboard documentary An Inconvenient Truth, is once again complaining that the media and its consumption is not more hive-minded. Former Vice President said that the functioning democracy relied on a shared base of knowledge that serves as a basis for reasoning together collectively, but the social media that is dominated by algorithms upsets this balance. According to Gore, people are being pulled down rabbit holes by algorithms that are the digital equivalent of AR-15s. They ought to be banned. They really ought to be banned. Gore claimed it's an abuse of the public forum and that people were being sucked into echo chambers. If you spend too much time in the echo chamber, what's weaponized is another form of AI, not artificial intelligence, artificial insanity. I'm serious, he added. Apparently the only echo chamber that should be allowed to exist is Gore's own rabbit hole, wherein the earth is constantly on the brink of destruction, thanks to people not obeying his technocratic mandates. Perhaps Gore is unhappy at his own misinformation being fact-checked by individuals who have access to information not produced by corporate media sources that are friendly to him. Gore infamously predicted that the North Polar ice cap would be ice-free within five to seven years. Of course, it never happened. As Thomas Cardinacci documents, Gore has a storied history of making climate change predictions that turn out to be spectacularly wrong. No wonder he wants to ban dissent. Take a listen to part of this interview from COP28. To one based on broadcasting and then moving on to the internet and to social media. 
has disrupted the balances that used to exist uh, that made representative democracy work much better. Because a free self-governing people rely on a shared base of knowledge that serves as a basis for reasoning together collectively. But uh, if you have social media that is dominated by algorithms that uh, pull people down these uh, rabbit holes that are a bit like pitcher plants, these algorithms, uh, they are the digital equivalent of AR-15s. They ought to be banned. They really ought to be banned. It's an abuse of the public forum. But when, these, when people are pulled down these uh, rabbit holes, you know what's at the bottom of the rabbit hole? That's where the echo chamber is. Uh, and if you spend too much time in the echo chamber, what's weaponized is another form of AI, not artificial intelligence, artificial insanity. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. One of the interesting things that we're seeing with this cast of characters like Al Gore and John Kerry and Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, etc., is they're all in their mid to late 70s, some even at 80, obviously in the case of Biden. Why the obsession at the end of career and obviously approaching these delicate twilight years? Are they so convinced that they must save the world for the rest of us when they might not even be here in a year or two or 10? Why is it that these people simply just cannot forgo their power and let it go to the next generation, the ones who have been not allowed to get any form of power to decide the future for their children instead of their grand and great-grandchildren. It justifies logic. Meanwhile, one person who has resisted the climate fear-mongering who uses facts to quell the globalist juggernaut is Ian Plymer. Here he is explaining some of the factual realities as he unpacks the media pylon that perpetuates a doomsday generation or perhaps doomsday century. Here is Plymer pointing out what for some of us is obvious as he's asked what what he is scared about, about climate change. Well, what I'm scared of is the mainstream media uncritically accepting this codswallop. <laughs> what I'm scared of is these people get given a microphone and talk about total lies. Hurricanes are not increasing. We have data. Sea level is not increasing. It's some places it's decreasing, other places it's increasing. We're not having an increase in bushfires. We're not having an increase in climate deaths. We have a very large data bank showing us the exact opposite. So what these people are doing is sprouting exactly the opposite to what the data tells us. They're doing it with much more noise. They're getting the very friendly media like The Guardian, like the mainstream media, saying, oh, we're all doomed. But every single prediction they've ever made has been wrong. Now, they've been doing this for 30 years. Mm. This latest missive was just over 30 pages long. All the science comes much later. So they give us all the scary stuff, but they don't give us their data. Mm. And they still haven't, after 30 years, they still haven't shown us that human emissions drive global warming. So I don't understand is if their predictions aren't accurate or if they're wildly inaccurate, why that doesn't dent their credibility? Why the, um, you would hope at times would be sceptical media say, well, five years ago you said this and this and none of that happened and you said this and this and actually the opposite happened. Why do we have this situation where it's the boy who cried wolf 
and every single time crying wolf works. It's a great scare story. We're all going to die. We're all doomed. And it's great for the mainstream media to frighten people. Front page on the newspaper, lead article on a television program. And people fall for the propaganda. There's been a relentless campaign of propaganda for 30 years and the basics haven't been shown. If you cannot show that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming, then all the arguments about coal, about gas, about hydrocarbons are not demonstrated. What, what about They're them? wrong. Last week, I compared Bill Gates to John Kerry, his daughter Vanessa Kerry and Hillary Clinton. In that comparison, I showed Bill Gates to be the moderate one of the four, as the Kerrys and Clinton were literally making up numbers to say that millions were dying annually as a result of climate change and heat. In that, I wonder about the people living in Greenland and in other places around Europe, where at the moment the snow is so dense, can't even get warming to even work. How are these people going to survive? Well, it would not take long before Gates would again be back to going down a new extremist pathway, manipulating cows to stop them giving off methane emissions from eating grass. I'm sure Gates has got something plastic to feed them and ultimately us instead. Here is more of Gates explaining his mad science. The same thing for uh, the agricultural sector, you know, beef, can you, and now I see two very amazing approaches by improving the cow breeding and giving them some other inputs, we can reduce their methane emissions. And this new prioritization of the methane work, uh, I applaud that because in terms of the near term temperature increase, methane plays a, a very big role. Are we meant to believe that cow farts are really destroying the earth and causing a contribution to an increase in global temperature? Last week, I played a clip of intellectual Thomas Sal explaining how he could not accept the UN climate change agenda because the data, which is used in science before narrative, took the academic pursuit hostage. Sal explained that the temperature rose before the increase in carbon dioxide. That means for the trillions of dollars in investment is being spent on the wrong things. Again, is Sal explaining some very important facts that science with a dollar sign seems to want to ignore. What do you make of global warming? I think it's a classic example of the need for crusades. Now, people, many people are shocked by these emails. I'm not at all shocked by them. I read, I read the original UN study years ago, and I was just curious as to how they were going to deal with the question that the uh, temperatures went up first. And then there was the increase in carbon, carbon dioxide. Right. Because you can't say that A causes B uh, uh, if B happened first. And so I read this, and I could see they were, they were tiptoeing through the tulips and the way they phrased things and so forth. They, they couldn't confront that. And, and now we're finding out uh, that they, they knew darn well they couldn't deal with all the evidence. So it fits the pattern of a group of intellectuals, science, climate scientists, mm -hmm. who are, have a very narrow competency suddenly proclaiming that there's a crisis, mm. scaring the rest of us, thereby creating a demand for their services, yes. not as science, climate scientists alone, mm -hmm. but as a kind of high priestly caste that can tell us all how to live and save the entire yes. planet, and in the meantime, generate billions of dollars worth of government programs to fund their research initiatives. And so, so are you, it's a racket. Yes. All right. But, but again, you have to t take account of the ability of human beings to rationalize. 
Uh, I'm sure there are scientists out there uh, who, who, who believe some or much of what they're saying, and there are other scientists who believe the opposite. But, they, but the ones who are pushing global warming are doing their damnedest to make sure that those who believe the opposite don't get heard in the public. Meanwhile, reporting from COP28, Alex Newman wrote, Top leaders at the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, are seeking the power to prescribe climate policy at the international level and then potentially even oversee its implementation and enforcement. Sounds like the WHO's plans for some sort of pandemic treaty. Critics, however, warned that the demands were not just unscientific, but would undermine self-governance while ushering in an insane totalitarian technocratic form of government. Speaking to the UK Guardian, one of its largest newspapers in the British Isles, and perhaps the most alarmist on climate issues, almost half a dozen IPCC officials suggested that these UN scientists needed vast new powers. The supposed goal, save humanity from its and carbon dioxide, known to scientists as the gas of life, despite being demonised as pollution by man-made global warming theorists. At some point, we need to say that if you want to achieve this aim set by policymakers, then certain policies need to be implemented, explained UN IPCC Vice Chairman Sonia Senevaratni, who has served as coordinating lead author of the UN climate science body for over a decade. As climate change becomes worse and worse, it is becoming more difficult to be policy relevant without being prescriptive. Leading scientists in the field, however, ridiculed the calls. Princeton University physics professor emeritus Will Hopper, who served as climate advisor to President Donald Trump and is a vocal critic of the UN's alarmism, paraphrased well-known conservative pundit William F. Buckley, telling the New American he would rather have climate policy set by the first 1,000 people in the telephone directory than by IP CC scientists. Addressing the climate panellists at COP28, Alex Newman asked all seven US senators at the conference how Joe Biden and the US government could make all these financial pledges and promises when polls show Americans don't believe their warming theory and Donald Trump may be president again soon. Alex Newman here with the New American Magazine. Uh, there was a poll released several months ago, AP North Center for Public Affairs Research, found that less than half of Americans even believe that human activity is causing climate change. About a third are willing to pay even a single additional dollar on their electric bill each month to deal with climate change. And with the very real prospect of Trump coming back to the White House in 2024, how is the U.S. government planning to make credible commitments on funding and on these other issues that you guys are talking about? Senator Coons, who chairs that committee. That was part of why I spoke to what I think is both the structure of the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which has directed tens of billions of dollars already to construction projects in predominantly red states or politically conservative states, and to the way that we've been able to get out of my uh, subcommittee and pass through the full committee uh, an additional billion and a half dollars in investment in combating climate change, predominantly in the global south, um, with an overwhelming bipartisan margin. So um, am I suggesting that were the former president to be our next president, everything would be fine? Not at all. Uh, but I'm saying that there is a broad enough and deep enough support for continuing investments to combat climate change and for the Inflation Reduction Act and bipartisan infrastructure law in particular that we will continue. We'll continue to move forward regardless.
Asked about fossil fuel elimination in 2019, Greenpeace co-founder and former Greenpeace Canada president Patrick Moore, an environmental scientist, said eliminating hydrocarbon energy would be a recipe for mass suicide. It's amazing that somebody in government would propose that we eliminate all fossil fuels in 12 years, he told The New American, saying that it had done globally, it would result in the decimation of the human population and the cutting down of virtually every tree. There's a lot of talk now in the United States about this Green New Deal. Uh, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to look at that, but what are your thoughts? Are, is this a good idea or are we in trouble or what's the plan? Well, it's a recipe for mass suicide. Uh, it's just quite amazing that someone that is in government, actually elected to the government of the United States of America, would propose that we eliminate all fossil fuels in 12 years. <laughs> this would basically result, if we did it on a global level, it would result in the decimation of the human population from seven odd billion down to who knows how few people. I mean, it would, it would basically begin a process of cannibalization amongst the human species because the food could not be delivered to the stores in the middle of the cities anymore. How would this, even just that one point, the, the point that bothers me the most is if you eliminated fossil fuels, every tree in the world would be cut for fuel. There's no other source of heating and cooking once you eliminate fossil fuels. You can use animal dung if there were any animals left, but the animals would all die too because, well, first off, they would all get eaten and any that survived would be, have to go wild because there'd be nobody left to look after them. I mean, it's the most ridiculous scenario I've ever heard. People recognize when something is preposterous and I think that's the best word for it. Well, the best word for it is actually mass suicidal. But why would anyone vote for something that was going to result in the death of nearly all humans on Earth? And today's last word goes to Alec Newman, who wrote that the IPCC being allocate, allowed to dictate and even enforce policy under the guise of stopping climate change. Patrick Wood, author of several books on technocracy and the leading critical expert on the movement, warned of disastrous consequences. If such a scheme were to move ahead, it would mean the end of freedom and the emergence of a new form of government dreamed up almost a century ago and pushed by David Rockefeller's trilateral commission that a single group of deluded technocrat scientists should declare themselves to be the sole enforcers of their own science is patently insane he told the new american if they are not summarily stopped it will give them the dictatorial power to implement every facet of agenda 21 the un 2030 agenda global biodiversity assessment and more in other words total scientific dictatorship would noted that when the idea of technocracy rule by scientists and experts was originally hatched by scientists at Columbia University in 1932. They had a vision similar to that hinted at by the IPCC. They basically called on FDR, the president, to declare himself dictator, to summarily dismiss Congress and to appoint scientists to run all of society, explained Wood pointing to the infamous Club of Rome's 1991 book, The First Global Revolution, would also noted that these would be tyrannical technocrats openly discussed searching for a common enemy, as they put it. That led to the idea of the threat of global warming, 
ultimately allowing them to claim that real enemy was humanity itself. In other words, it was a scam made up as a pretext for implementing technocracy, Wood said, commenting on the IPCC scientists' calls for more power. Climate Depot editor Mark Morano, one of the world's leading climate skeptics, suggested there was a link between their latest pronouncements and government's COVID power grabs of recent years. The UN scientists were jealous when they saw how public officials could implement authoritarian policies during COVID. Now they want Fauci-like powers, he argued, describing the advocates as scientists' dictators. And there it is, our very own Mark Morano. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this edition of Compass. Up next is Chris Smith. I'm Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio.